Hi, I'm Nigel Campbell, editor of Jazz in the Islands magazine, with another episode of Island Jazz Chat, a podcast featuring conversations with Caribbean jazz and pan-jazz musicians based in the islands and the diaspora. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Island Jazz Chat. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to steel pan jazz musician, Leon Foster Thomas. Leon, how are you? How are you doing, Nigel? Thanks for having me. Not a problem, not a problem. I've been having this conversation with Panjaz musicians here and in their diaspora for quite some time. And yeah. you had, of course, been on my list to speak to. It just didn't happen until now, but say what? Um, such is life. Where are you right now in the world? Let me just get out of the bat one time. I'm currently in London. Uh, moved from Miami just recently. So... Uh, here in London doing my PhD. So PhD was, in what? I'm doing a PhD actually in Caribbean jazz of the um yeah, Caribbean jazz of the Francophone and Anglophone Caribbean. Excellent. Um, yeah. How did what has your research found this specifically for the Anglophone Caribbean? When did that develop? You know, that 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 has started actually um um actually since Ever since I really started playing and, and you know, playing jazz and what have you, we're pushing like, you know, music that we came from home. Mm-hmm. And we found that every time we kept talking about the music, everybody's like, okay, what kind of style of music is that? And how, what do you call this or what have you? And every time, you know, we couldn't really find proper definitions of it, but also there was nothing, not much information with regards to the music from the English-speaking Caribbean or, you know, you know, or the French-speaking Caribbean, much less for the Dutch. Um, if you even pull up Caribbean jazz, you see Dave, Dave Samuels and... Yeah, Caribbean oh, Jazz Project. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that was like the biggest thing. And, and so it's something that I've been battling and going back and forth with. But, you know, you have people like Monty, Alexander, and all these other folks yeah. that are doing stuff like that. And so it's not like the music is not known, but, but mm-hmm. it's just like um, folks has not really been recognized in it. But also I found that there are ways, well, we don't, there isn't any curriculum or any part to say, well, let's fully explain what this thing really means and and, and in depth to really help push this narrative or just our sound, uh, as especially as, a lot of musicians coming out from the Caribbean are really making their name in the in the in the music scene these days. I'm happy to hear that you're going to be doing this. So when you become Dr. Thomas, you have to have a further conversation because, like you, unlike you, I should say, I'm not a musician, right? I'm not a professional musician. I write reviews and I promote an event called Jazz Artists and the Greens. But critically, I've been a fan of this thing called Caribbean jazz since going back and my my life is Clive Zander's album um, Kaiso Jazz and Innovations Clive Zander's here with that kind of thing that was like in 75 or 76 right. but the idea of melding you know jazz improvisation sitting with our local melodies and I've done some research I've written a, a paper for Caribbean Studies Association a while ago about mm-hmm. jazz and Trinidad and you know this obviously this kind of narrative that we all understand about um, 
Schofield Pilgrim at QRC Jazz yeah. and that kind of stuff back in the 60s and Zander probably separately doing his thing. But Zander yeah. admitted also there were musicians who, were, when he got to England, there were musicians already there. Russ yeah. Henderson, um, Rupert Nurse, um, somebody names escaping me right now, but um, I think Cherry. There were, there were bands playing, you know, playing Calypso and improvising at the time with the, with the kind of understanding of what jazz was certainly in the 50s and 60s and things. But right. a kind of formalized output, the way that Latin jazz has that, is something that is really missing, admittedly. So I'm really, really happy that, one, you're doing it at a PhD level, and um, hopefully I write a book because that's what the other thing is some literature. <laughs> <laughs> some literature that's the scary part about it, but yeah, I have to I have you know get into the whole idea of writing and all that kind of stuff. And because but because it's very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, because we we especially here in Britain, um the, the we had that freedom to do a lot of that. Um, the Caribbean folk had a lot of freedom to really experiment and do be themselves in that in that sense and create a scene. Mm-hmm. Actually, you can't say the British jazz scene without the the mentioning people from the Caribbean and so Caribbean, on. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, even during the war. Yeah, yeah, especially you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, like me, you know, me, I grew up in I lived in America for so long and went to school there, but nobody mentioned anything about Joe Harriet about mm-hmm. free free jazz and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, you know, everybody talk about Ornette Coleman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, well, you know, here's Joe Harriet considered the father of free jazz here in Europe. And I'm like, okay, there's something going on that people are not talking about um, with that. So it's exciting. Mm. Um, it's really, really good to know, um, especially from, you know, people always on you know, these little islands in the Caribbean, but we, we, we have such a big voice that, however, we're, we're 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 always being pushed to decide or being told that no, that is not that important. Or you know, you you're supposed to be a Caribbean island, serve drinks and rum and cocoa, yeah, yeah. rum and yellow bird and a seal pad. But you know, but, but not, not people. We're not given being given the credit or even the, the you know pretty much the credit or even the space to really say, hey, we 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 did something here and um, mm. you know, towards jazz and and. In, in its entirety so 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 this is really interesting to be working on this kind of project wonderful we, we await that book down the road <laughs> but, um, but let's let's go right back to the beginning of the career of leon foster thomas because um i know you started to record it in the 2010s but clearly you're making music and performing and living music let's let's start let's let's, let's do a little mini biography how did you start your musical career i started Pan, well, oh, in, never, oh, in music, sorry. Yeah, let, me, let me take that back. In music. <laughs> let, me do, let me do box you into one instrument. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I started playing around like three years old. I started playing African drums, three years old, um, Best Village and stuff like that through my father, um, Ludrick Foster, um, Ludrick Rollo Foster. He used to mm-hmm. do uh, Best Village with, uh, or he, he also was in that National Dance Company. And um, he was a master drummer and stuff like that. And Pleasantville performers and Katumba performers. And so I started off with that, but my family is just a full musical family. My mother was a singer, my sister dancer, and playing drums and singing, everybody doing all kinds of stuff. And um, so I grew up with that, never liked Pan, but I always used to watch when my sister, they played with like fun. I remember Pan by Storm in that time. And um, when I got introduced to Pan, that really set me off. I was like, okay, yeah, this this kind of cool. So I used to break school and thing. I used to put on my school clothes. <laughs> How old were you by that time? I was like 
13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. I got bitten by the bug and my mother, I was just, I was four one. And my mother was getting ready for work and I would put on my school clothes and she would leave and go to work. And mm. when she got, I hung up the pan between the window. We grew up in the squatting area, hung up the pan between the window and practiced whole day to whatever song came over the radio. And I was just intrigued by music. Not, ne- not necessarily the pan, only yeah, the pan was interesting, but I wanted to like play music because I was hearing that all my life. So, um, the plan has really became my vehicle and so vehicle to to expre- express myself musically. And so that that's how this whole thing came about. And I started playing in the Panyards from Panasonic Connection to Fun Club from, from San Fernando. And um, from then working with Professor for some years, it was just like, wow, you know, he started throwing some knowledge and that's Professor about- Fillmore. Ken Professor yeah, Fillmore, Fillmore yeah. our listeners. Yeah, go ahead. And, you know, he started sharing knowledge in terms of what is improvisation and the story, telling the story. So these were like impromptu lessons in music that we got in the Panyards. I think that maybe we all take for granted because we, you know, I mean, it's not so formal. It's just these guys come in, they're doing the music. But uh, I was so intrigued by listening. And Pro at that time was this superstar coming into the Panyard because he was on Scotiabank commercials and all that kind of stuff when you see him traveling. And um, that really helped light a fire in me. And I mean, mind you, Professor lived right around the corner from us. He was, a, he was living in Pleasantville as well. So when you see the guys like, Professor, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. uh, so, so that really pushed something. And um, I didn't, however, knew about jazz and all that kind of stuff until I came to the States, until I went to the States. You came to the States to study or you could just live? The study, I went to study and then I ended up just um, sticking over there. Mm. Uh, I went to school. I started school in 2001. Yeah, <laughs> 2001, yeah. Mm. And um, I did my undergraduate in popular music. I got a, a partial scholarship to study popular music mm-hmm. with um, Dr. Don Batson uh, playing drums for the Steel Orchestra. It's in Florida Memorial University, yeah. if my research yeah. accurate. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Florida mm-hmm. Memorial University with Don. Um, and, um, but I was so, nobody, nobody knew I played pan. Mm. There's a lot of people in Trinidad that also did not know I, I played pan as well. And the jazz band was playing and I was like, you know, I really want to play with this jazz band and really want to get into the whole thing. So I went to the professor of the jazz ensemble, Melton Mustafa, um, now deceased. And I asked him, I was like, you know, can I join the jazz band? And his first words to me is like, are you good? (laughs) 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 So, and then he put me in front of the band to fill this big jazz ensemble and all the songs. And he's like, go in the middle there, play. I was like, all right. (laughs) That's how it is. You know, and. And it was, and it went on from there. And I, it just took off. I, I, I knew I had this knack for like hearing and creating music and all that kind of stuff. So that's really where this whole thing really took off from. Mm. I was that, you know. And um, well, I, I as I said, based on my research, you had gone to university, Florida Memorial, to do your undergraduate. You did mm. your master's at Florida International. Yeah. What was your master's thesis if you had one? My master's was in um, jazz performance and. Uh, 
And um, really, we really just had to, it wasn't no great thesis, really. I, actually, it was about jazz. It was about the steel pan and the jazz combo. That's okay, that was it. Yeah. What year was that? What year was, was your master's? 2012. 2012. Oh, so therefore yeah. there was, so because as I said, part and part of how I do these things is I kind of chronologically track the recordings, yeah. right? So I'm aware that your first record I don't want to forget the name of the record. I'm aware that the first record, what you don't know, came out in 2010. Yeah. Right? yeah. And you said, basically, at that point, you already had an undergraduate degree. Mm. And mm-hmm. you had been working with Professor Fillmore in South. Yeah. South yeah. Trinidad. And, of course, he was living up in the States at that time. I think he was, I knew he was in America because I lived in the States for a little while and I met him right. up there before 2005. Right. And, um, I remember that first for him that first album thing. It is a real funky, funky pan player, but the technique and the touch mm-hmm. was immaculate. Admittedly, some 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 audible references to Professor style, but <laughs> still unique all the same.
that first album come around since well, you're you already had a, an undergraduate degree and the masters yeah. was in the future right so so throughout throughout my undergraduate degree it was kind of like i think the degree kind of came and gone just like that because i was in my back in the back of my head I was like well, let me just hurry up and get this degree out the way because i wanted to focus on music or well, my focus actually was just performing so as a freshman i was still performing i started recording and playing with rock bands and and from gospel to rock bands to whatever style of music i wanted to be part of it because i was experimenting i'm taking the pan i put like distortion to pan so i was recording all these times mm-hmm. but throughout the time we, we you know some of my classmates were already playing professionally who was playing with anthony hamilton and joe scott and all that kind of stuff and so they were always calling me to sessions i was always playing in sessions and um also the thing about was to hey, you need to have a record you need to have a record so we've been pushing out records pushing a record but we didn't know how costly a record was or the logistics of how putting out a record it well imagine you know and so i graduated in 2005 actually and we had a record out actually uh, with my group cross crossover jazz, we started a group crossover jazz. Myself. So you have a record preceding what you do? Yeah, yeah Professor, but we learn something new every day on Island Jazz Chat. <laughs> Why is that the record not in the public domain? In the sense of available to the public to purchase, what's happening? Uh, you know, we never released it, but we were selling it on gigs. That's and a release. Yeah, you know, I mean, like we never like had this big official thing, and I always did say we have to make dollar copies because they're like. Do you have loud. digital files? Yeah, I have. I have, like, you can get that. You oh, you know, that. you have to share with Island Jazz Chat. All right, wonderful. What was the name of that particular 2005 record, if you don't mind? That was in 2004. 2004. And, it, and it's called Crossover Jazz Live. And um, oh. it's live at the University of Miami. I wasn't going there, mm. uh, but it was a gig and we got good sound. Mm. And like I was saying, everybody wanted to, re- everybody was like, you need to get a record. Um, the band included myself, Jean Caz. He had just moved from New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, drummer At- Andrew Atkinson was my real, was my real dear friend. That was he's my real dear friend. Mm-hmm. He really, um, he knew how green I was in music. We were same age, same age. Mm-hmm. I, like you know, are you listening to this? Listen to that. Here, look, take that. Listen to this. And he's on drums, and I'm on pan, and we just go and. And so we started, he was in that group and we never really had a solid bass player because bass players in Miami were very, it's very hard to stick down. So, um, you had Jaco, but that was another era. Yeah, we had Jaco for so long. I mean, and funny enough, as you said, Jaco, I met Andrew at um, a celebration for Jaco Pastorius, which normally mm-hmm. is around the month of December. Mm-hmm. We went to the Alligator Alley in, in, in Fort Lauderdale and met with Jaco's son and Felix mm-hmm. and so on. So we were really good friends then. And um, but on that record, we got Armando Gola, who was a bass player, and yeah, and David Siegel on keys. Mm-hmm. We have four songs in the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the songs is um Little Sunflower, um, and then uh, Footprints, uh, two of my originals, one called Torment, which I wrote for Pan and mm-hmm. Took it in for like, it's on what you don't know. Torment is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tune called Calcutta. 
I think so. And, <laughs> and we put and, and we got a good sound out of the record. We was like, hey, we should sell it on gigs. So we were going. So you had, on. so you had your your your, your initial. I mean, I'm I'm surprised to hear this because I'm I'm not yeah. aware. That no, other people are aware of this unless you went to a gig of crossover jazz back in Miami back in the day. But certainly, that's that's imp- I'm I'm happy to hear that you yeah. got into the business of of making music earlier clock, effectively before you graduated. So yeah, long before I was doing mm. concerts and traveling and you so doing festivals at that point also. All that time I was doing festivals and stuff like that, and um, I had my approach to Pan is different. My goal was to have a different approach to pan i didn't listen to pan players religiously only for a reason not out of disrespect was just the fact that i didn't want to sound like them i wanted to have my own niche my own sound my own style of music and everything like that i mean you can't i mean i've hung around professor for so long i've hung around boogsy for so long you can't you kind of yeah, yeah. their their DNA is in, in the yeah, first album. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie to you when I hear so come on, but, <laughs> what's happening here? But as I said, the thing that surprised me as a, as a listener was your, your technical, you know, the, the flair and your flexibility of your wrist and in terms of the playing that te- yeah. that touch as it was, and I thought that was impressive as well as great songwriting. I mean, let's just put it out there. That first album had some beautiful songs. There's one that I always st- stood out for me. Um, yeah. No looking back.
man. I love I, that. I always, I, I'm always story storytelling, and I actually was. Uh, I got married young, and I was like, I wrote the stone. I was like, nah, I ain't going back there, no. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I was like, nah, no looking back there. But we wanted the, the basis of that album, and which maybe why I didn't get like all the reviews or whatever. But partially, we didn't. I didn't understand the whole marketing issue, marketing mm-hmm. aspect of, of putting out a record. Um, we there is this thing where we talk about it, especially from Trinidad. I'm drawing from my experience in Trinidad as well, whereas we want to show people that Pan could play everything. Uh, yes. Maybe that's, it's, it's a good thing, but maybe not so much a good thing because just when you are ready to channel your music and you're trying to create a niche, you have to have some form of direction, especially for how do you want to market this? Which direction? Of course, it might be a bit broader, but you need to have some mm-hmm. channel to put it in. That's where you know, your publicist or whomever could say, well, okay, we're pushing in this direction. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. And so so, so you got a little bit of um, from no looking back to what you don't know. I was so heavy into funk music. Yep. I played, in, you know, everything. You had big beat. Um um, no looking back was so cool because I wanted to test myself in terms of writing, and it was all because of the people that I was surrounding myself with. Um, I used to, I always, I, I used to tell myself, I still do up to this point. I wanted to surround myself with musicians that would kick my ass. Yeah, you want the best. Yeah, I no? there's a famous line at Pat Metini, among others. I've said this thing: you want to go on the band, sign with musicians who are better than you. You yeah. have to be the worst musician on the band, sign because that's the only way you will get better. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, you want them to kick your ass, as I said. <laughs> I would go home. There are many nights in jam sessions in Miami. I would go and go home vexed because I didn't, I didn't mm. play well. I did, I thought that I didn't play well, and mm. you had people like, oh man, you sound so amazing. But me, I know, like I didn't nail it right. Mm. Uh, I didn't really. If, maybe the, the sense of competition, maybe from Trinidad or whatever, but I was competing against the other musicians. Not to say, well, I'm the best for the night, just to make sure that I stood firm. Mm-hmm. One, because you have, you're playing pan. Not much people give you credit for playing pan. People still look at the pan as, oh, it's not a serious instrument. The, That's unfortunate. Know, that is unfortunate. I mean, I've, before before your po- this podcast, I've spoken to the kind of, you know, Anis Hadid, Victor Provost, Andy Norell. And they all say the same thing, that they have to work hella hard to position the instrument in the same space as a saxophone in a yeah. jazz ensemble, right? Yeah. And because a lot of, well, certainly in American audiences and, in, and even with Annie's in England, you yeah. said how audiences generally just think a pan only plays island music, you know, as, you know, the yellow bird, that kind of stuff. Of and despite the fact that Leon, um, Rudy Smith has been recording since early, before everybody, before yeah. people born and all that stuff, I think. And, <laughs> Putting pan in front of a jazz and someone playing bebop and that kind of stuff, people say no, it doesn't make a difference. Oh, no. Rodney similarly innovating on the instrument, and people are still insisting audiences unaware of the flexibility, the um, the 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 range of yeah. tones and colors and emotions that come come out of a, a percussive instrument, mm-hmm. and certainly in the hands of a master as it was, they they just it's there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And you and you are doing that work. I'm happy to say that. Happy to say that. Um, going forward, your your second album was called Brand New Mischief, and I, I think it was dedicated to your daughter. Am I correct or incorrect on that? 
because there's a particular song Anisi I think that's your, your daughter that's your daughter's name Anisi yeah Anisi I mispronounced the names what they might Anisi the same thing no worries mm-hmm. um, uh, you know my, 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 my wife and I have this um, love affair with France um, mm. so, so she did a study abroad at, at, at um, Annecy the city uh, a town called Annecy in, in France and um, um, yeah we were like you know yeah that's our first kid you know you like that I think it's a nice name it works and uh, it meant uh, I think the, the, the meaning of it mean, means blessed by nature I believe it was so we were like okay cool you know
I wanted her to know that through music, I wanted her to know how glad I was to be a father at that point. Um, That's beautiful. Even before my my previous marriage, I didn't have any children, and actually, uh, I was told that yeah, you couldn't have any children or whatever the case. This was this was like a miracle, like really. Mm. You know what I mean, mm. I I've had p- tunes written, not necessarily with that focus of having children, but I had a piece called um, there's a piece called Baby Powder that I had wrote, and I just put it there and mm-hmm. cool, you know. And so when that time came, we just the writing just took off, and I just wrote. So from from brand new mischief to Annecy to baby powder to blue, um, a more blue, mm-hmm. uh, I'm it, to sleepless nights, sleepless, sleepless nights, nights. soul window enchantment, uh, yeah, yeah, you mm-hmm. know, and enchantment was written funny enough in 2010, okay, and the original name for enchantment was Obia, Obia, all right. <laughs> Amazing because you have Obia Wedding on your first album. Um, okay. what, we, what we know is Melda. Funny, you know, because I wanted it to. Um, I, had, I had met up with, we kind of found kind of fast track a little bit, but I met up with Etienne Charles mm-hmm. for the first time in 2010 at the Jazz at Lincoln Center. They used to have the Pan Jazz concert. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the first year we, we did the show. So Etienne's theme or the theme for the show was folklore, mm-hmm. which was over eight years record. That was his album at the time, yeah. And when they were getting all the music for the thing, I was like, well, you know, I was telling the guys like, I write music, you know, I, I, great to be on the show, but I would love mm. my music to be out there. So I wrote this piece, and because um, I didn't think we were getting a voice, the pan mm. player myself, Freddie Harris, and Andrew White was playing pan, and I was like, well, we were just filling in, and I was like, we weren't getting a voice, so. I would like to present a song, so I wrote this tune, and purposely, um, <laughs> purposely um, left the horns out. <laughs> Thank you, Etienne. <laughs> you know, um, because I thought it would have been it's 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 a perfect opportunity to make sure that okay, this we can really hit, you know, I could play and what have you, and. So we did Obia, but not into the form of black magic, but just fit the theme of magic. Mm-hmm. So then when so when it came to the record, I I changed the name from Obia to Enchantment. You okay. Know.
So that's what I did on that record. Mm. Sleepless Nights was really, literally, the, the baseline of that is the kicking of our daughter in the mother's belly. Wow. So yeah. there was a, it's a personal album, as you rightly said. There are stories about this on this album. Sorry, each song represents a story and yeah. has a meaning. Because, yeah. um, well, further down in this interview, we'll talk about your upcoming album, Calas Sanitas. And you did outline to me that every song has a very specific meaning. But is that part of your, the way that you compose, that songs are yeah. not just songs, but songs are stories? Yeah, yeah. I, it, 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 I always believe that when you listen to music, something has to happen to you. It, it, you, something has to happen to you and it has to resonate at somewhere where it's like you, you can't just listen to music as just passive, a passive consumption. I don't believe that. I even to the what you know, the simplest of song that does something to me, and I really get deep into like thought. And so, so when I write, I want it to be purposeful and you know, you've mentioned Pat Mat Matheny and stuff like that, and I've met Pat Matino. Mm. I had conversation with him, Abraham Laboreal, the same thing. And, um, you know, I, I was like a little fly on the wall and really bugging people like what you should do and what about this and how do you write and da, 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 and, you know, and because I, I really wanted to learn. And, but always, I always, when I was writing, I always wanted to express something because music was the way I could really express myself. And so what with my compositions, I want them to mean something. There's okay. There's a background behind that, so maybe it might fit yours, or you know, somewhere, or, or that people don't understand it mm. more. You know, especially as instrumental music. One of the things that I, I observed um, by the time of Brand New Mischief, admittedly, it was a, an evolution in the sound, and, and admittedly, as your career goes on, you evolve your sound and your quality and thing. But um, I'm I'm not sure the, the pan that you use, you're a tenor panist, tenor pan soloist. You don't use a double second, right? Just out of curiosity, who makes your pan? My pan was made by Butch Kalman. Butch Kalman, yes, legendary pan tuner from China. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a gift from um Invaders. Oh. I was you, you played with them at the time? I, I was playing with Invaders before I went to college. Um mm. we were when I left Fonco in 1999, we had got disqualified and I, I wanted to, people was like, you know, you, you were a really good player and what have you, but we, I didn't see any way for us going forward. Or for me, I said, you know what? I, I was by Desperados. Mm -hmm. And Pastor called in the middle of the year and he's like, hey, we're going by Invaders. Like, you mean we're going by Invaders? That was got us disqualified. Mm -hmm. And so that swung me from going all the way Desperados, uh, which might be experienced because you're talking Bradley at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we were two years by Invaders, two or two, almost three years. So when I was getting ready to leave Invaders um, for school, um, the, the manager at that time, Ricardo Hobart, he was like, you know, um, any pan that you like, we want to give you a gift to go to school. Mm. Uh, funny enough, there was, this pan was, was in the pan yard. Nobody played it. Nobody played it. So the fact that nobody knew I played pan, I used to go and practice drums with the band. I played drums with the band. And I would go to practice early, pull out the pan, run my hand. But mm -hmm. and realize nobody, every time I, nobody picks out this pan. So that was, it was like, that was just there for me. And Yeah, that pan was destined for you. 
yeah, yeah. So it still have Invaders Mark on it. Yeah, inscribed on the pan and everything like that. Is that the one that's currently gold, or is that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's an. It's the same pan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. See, a steel pan, I guess, is like a, a very good violin. It oh, could yeah. literally be decades, if not centuries old, and still be played. That's amazing yeah. to hear. That is amazing yeah. to Butch Kelman, look at that. Quality pan. Has, and he's a, and that pan has played, of course, on all, well, now five albums. I was going to say four albums, but five albums. Excellent. Five albums and more, you know, obviously, yeah. <laughs> You've done session work with other yeah. musicians. What was the session work you were doing up to 2012? Ooh. All right, let me see. Uh, let me see if I can give a quick one. I, I was one, there's an album called, I believe it's Chinatown with uh, Oleg, Oleg Bootman, Oleg and Natal, Oleg Bootman and Natalis Minova from Russia. I was touring there for quite a while. Thank you. 
there's a group called Chinatown. <laughs> so Sam Henry, Sam Henry and uh, gathering of friends, Patpuri. Um, I was living in Austin, Texas, and I got called to do a session with uh, Cyril Neville and stuff like that. Mm. So the Neville to, brothers, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so he was there. Was, it was a weird session. I was just driving around Texas, and I got called, hey, you want to do a session? Hey. Like, yeah, you know, your your neighbors out there was, I'm, I'm available. This is yeah, my feet. Yeah. <laughs> we drove in there. We did that. Um, God, um, there's there's quite a few. There's whew, it's funny when you're not thinking about it. Yeah, it, it comes to mind. But I, I would hopefully remember my the next session I get. Yeah, you you were doing um well. It's of course you were doing sessions, but you also you said something. You were touring Russia. And I did see on your, your, your CV, as it was, that you had done a couple of festivals in Russia. How did that Russia connection come about? Because to me, it's like the furthest place I would have thought of as a steepan <laughs> musician, as a soloist heading to. I never thought I would ever even go there. I was never in the first part of my mind, period. Mm. Uh, but it's funny, you have to make sure that you go, you go sessions and go to jam sessions. And there was this new jam session that had opened up close to where I was living in Miami. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was by the local music shop. And um, just that day, I wasn't feeling to go to the jam session. I was like, nah, I ain't going now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I remember I had promised the guy I was coming. I was so I said, well, let me go. And lo and behold, when I got to the jam session, this guy, this man and his wife playing, he's on drums and she's on piano and ripping the whole place up. It's like, wow. And we end up playing together. And after playing together, I mean, Sometimes you wish that you had recordings of those times because it was fire. Yeah. <laughs> so after playing together, I um, got found other information. We talked, switched, um, exchanged info, and then I took them to a few jam sessions in Miami. That back in then, back then days, when we talk about well, less than ten years ago, within the past ten years, you had a lot more places for jam sessions in Miami. Unfortunately, okay. a lot of places closed down. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took them to a few spots in Miami and um, they went back to, to Russia. And I believe this would have been around like March. So I, and then July came around and I got this email. Hey man, how would you like to come to Russia? And I was like, you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, went there um, or something else. Um, because I was scared to go anyways, but yeah, the Trinidad passport or an American yeah. passport. Yeah, funny. <laughs> <laughs> because American passport is a question mark with Russia. <laughs> well, you know what? The, the American passport would have been great. I had the Trinidad passport, but not the barcode one that we have. Ah, <laughs> not the modern one. Yeah. Pressure. <laughs> How are you going to return to America? <laughs> I thought they were going to send me home. I had my green mm. card and everything. Mm. And um so I got into the, the customs quick story. Mm. We got into Russia and going through the customs now and you have the visa. So the lady's taking the passport and trying to swipe it. And I'm like, wait, mm. trying to tell her, well, it ain't that kind of passport, you know. <laughs> lucky they lucky they get said though, because I think there was a deadline to, to to have these kind of standardized passports. <laughs> it's, but it was still valid, yeah. So mm. I'll take on my green card and she's like, go in the corner, there's just point because mm. So I stood up there. Um, there was this flight from Angola that they had put everybody to stand up there. I don't know what they were doing, if they were sending them back or what have you. And um, I called home and I was like, yo, like, 
Knicks, is it? Wait, why can't we? <laughs> after that whole 10 hours on the point, I have to go back home. <laughs> so so I found like they were taking a while and I called the guy. I was like, look, I don't think it, I'm getting through here. And yeah, but but you know what part of that is also the the thing that America does it puts you through this whole thing when you go into immigration, you're always scared that they would send you back home or some kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and next thing into this short little lady comes walking because after like an hour and a half and she went in this room and it just sounded like they were arguing and this is me with my fast self took out my my green card and i walked in the room and i was like well you know i have an american green card and it's like no get out mm, 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 <laughs> and next mm. thing you know they called me and stopped my passport boom i was gone mm. um and i we had a show that same night called jazz in motion in the heart of moscow uh, the video about it or something like that and television came and all this kind of stuff and um people you know i mean it was, it was crazy I, I mean like the the russian culture was being put like hey you you need to try this this is boshkin this is this and this. you know what i mean like uh people bringing flowers to you and i was like wow this is different <laughs> yeah you know because one 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 you heard so many horror stories about the place mm-hmm. politically yes there's i mean especially what's happening now yeah pretty right now <laughs> yeah you know and yeah. um, but but the people they're so warm um they're so given i mean like they you know even the old folks who was never like people uh, we went to this place called yekaterinburg and um I've never, you know, this, they had this big statue of Lenin and all that kind of stuff. And then I walked, I was um, taken to, I was took to this market, the street market. This old lady came up, you know, like, just as all you would saw in this, see in the movies and stuff with the scarf on her head. And she comes, <laughs> touch my hand and she touched my face and my hair. And, wow, you let her touch your hair? I'm glad for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she stared me from top to bottom, but... And and the girl that was taking me around, she was like, you know, a lot of people have never seen anyone like you. Um, Say it never, now. They haven't seen black people. Say it yeah. now. <laughs> you know, and, and and they've never left this the, the, that town. You mm-hmm. know, um, a lot of the places where it's it it on the outside it looked a little rough, but when you go inside some of the places, I think it's. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've, I've traveled throughout various parts of russia you know even siberia and stuff like that and there are receptive audiences in these remote areas i say remote but in these russian cities yeah. for pan yeah. or yeah. is it just for jazz only and jazz, it, doesn't I mean, it doesn't really make a difference you know i mean in, mm-hmm. in europe in europe there is people come out to hear for entertainment there is that education about the arts yes i i found I think it's there as well in the U.S., but it's not in that sense. You have to be like a big name to to have all these set of crowds in that sense, um, mm-hmm. you know, on a on a widely speaking. Um, in Trinidad, I found, and these are how I started making comparisons, and um, in, in a way, like as to how to, uh, you know, how should we improve the scene. Whereas back in the day, you had Best Village and all that kind of stuff. Arts was so heavily driven in our culture and now it's just I just don't think it's fully there but I haven't lived in Trinidad for so long but there's a disconnect with mm-hmm. regards to appreciation for arts people mm-hmm. feel like you know um, um, you, you, you're singing a calypso what are you singing that for you know what I mean like yeah. oh, 
You play in Palm Bay? No. Oh, there. Uh-huh. I, I, no, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but as you rightly said, the European scene, and I think probably the Japanese scene, I don't know if you've been to Japan, oh, but yeah. appreciation of the arts is a paramount thing. It's almost a respectability thing. Yeah. So that you play in a pan or if you're playing accordion or, or del, whatever the place, whatever these instruments are, yeah. um, it doesn't make a difference because their whole thing is about appreciating music, right? Exactly. The American thing is about commerciality, right? Either you're popular or you're not popular. Right. Sure. And if and so that you may be a brilliant musician who's unpopular and that affects how audiences react. They would just say, uh-huh. Yeah, you can play pan, but I'm not really interested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't have a million followers or something he like that. Have, yeah, exactly. You know, you know, because that, that's so important now in terms of booking, how many followers you have in Facebook and what have you. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So are you looking at the European market as a space for your for your music? Or your because yeah, yeah. I know that right now you're in Britain. Yeah. Well, for for studying, but you lived in America, Miami, for many years. I mean, I know it's, it's very early in the European space, mm-hmm. even with Brexit. But um, is that a market based on your experience in Russia that you could really want to explore further? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I've been exploring this for a minute. So I mean, a minute. <laughs> Sorry, part of the speech. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. One, uh, yeah. Um, I, I get it. I know that Sometimes I had to catch myself again. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. But um, no, we've been um, traveling Europe for a while from you know Germany and France and so on, doing tours and uh, and so on. And I've found that to be, you know, very, the European market always been very receptive. Just make sure your work, your, your, your presentation is good. If it ain't good, it ain't coming back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we looked at this as a great, I looked at this as a great advantage for me going forward as to, okay, we have a market, we've, we've tested this waters many times and the response has been great. And um, even just recently we did at the Vortex and it was a sold out audience. We're like, what, you know? Um, and it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good and it makes you, it, 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 it makes you want to like prepare much. I mean, um, as a young musician, it's very tough in the States. Not even a young musician, just somebody trying to break in on the scene. It's tough in the States, whereas you're not a big name. You're good, but yeah, we don't want to pay you that much or we're this or whatever the case is. And um, it, there is kind of like the same set of people going around the circuit. And if mm. you get chucking every now and again, um, uh, however, in Europe, I there's so much young, there's so much music, there's so much musicians um, here, whereas like, I've never heard of so, but so much people, but there's, mm. I mean, um, but there's a plethora of young musicians and really, really good music coming out there. Um, some of them, if I thought if they were in the States, they would have had to work extra hard. I mean, which is, mm. which is mm-hmm. not bad. You know? I mean, but, they, you know, there's people just hungry or maybe just because of the scene, I don't know if it's a young or old scene, but I mean, it's it's really happening at this point in time. I, I get the impression, as I said, as you said, if you're a young musician in America, you have to, you're not part of the circuit, not part of that that clique that will always be on all the shows and even as an opening act on certain festivals. You have to really work extra hard because yeah. I think that at the end of the day, certainly in the American scene, it's about making money. It's, a, it's still a business. I think the, the Europeans have accepted music as culture. And, they, yeah. and they've recorded their culture with books and classical music and all that kind of stuff for centuries, longer than America has existed. They've yeah. actually written and spoken about their culture, certainly in Russia. They're very mm-hmm. proud of that. So that 
even with these new inclusions, when jazz musicians are leaving America and coming to Europe and recognizing, oh my God, these people love us. Yeah. They're, they're treating us like gods, right? There was something about that, Amer- that European scene versus American scene. And I think there's a kind of similar situation here in the Caribbean. I mean, there are very few musicians who are still here, playing here in the Caribbean and getting gigs at the various festivals on, in other islands. Mm-hmm. But um, so there, they, many, many have to migrate or get gigs yeah. outside or go on a cruise ship or some kind of thing like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the difficulty, and I could speak as a promoter, is the, the thing is to build a, an, an audience who just appreciates music, one, and who's willing to buy the music. Because that's the other thing. A number of musicians, I've always told them, record, record, record. It's a waste of money. It's, I can't get this. The economics of it may not make perfect sense. But I think for a career, having that yeah. album, I think it's critical because that's your passport to exactly. everywhere else, right? Plus, it's the record. You tell me you're a musician. How would I know? And if you if I come on the night and the song system ain't good or you're sick, <laughs> my first impressions are lasting impressions. Make a yeah. record, yeah. <laughs> at least. Exactly. You know, it, it's it's important as you say that, and mm-hmm. and there's there's something I've been toying with for a while. Whereas I think we, with the amount of talent that we have in Trinidad, and, and, um, there we need to really properly establish a scene, but also not not it's not that there's not a scene. There's a scene, but we have to show people we you have to show people a part going forward that this this is the direction that this can mm. get to mm. uh, and this this could be possible by us bringing workshops but also bringing some of the people to the soil with regards to promoters and the lawyers and the uh, because what you get and what you get is a lot I have this talent the simple CD out there and all right I do it now what now what yeah and not understanding the process that needs to happen. Because even though I've said, you know, America's a whole lot tougher, but understanding the market, what you need to do marketing-wise and all that kind of stuff. Now you have the added to the, the, the equation. Now you have social media and all that, which is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Putting out a record and understanding the direction that your record needs to go to, um, understanding your niche, understanding your sound, understanding what needs to happen, even... And, and then uh, understanding when this happened by hiring a publicist and understanding how that will work and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if we can get that happening, I, I think we have a way forward. Um, also getting people to understand how the Grammy works, how it actually mm-hmm. works. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a voting member of the Grammy. I should have to take my ballots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and because of that, you know, because I had stuff being sold and I had stuff out there, whatever the case is, how does this voting system works? How we can actually get Grammys in Trinidad or have Trinidad mm. or our people, because Grammys will just come just so, and okay, you change your style and you sound like somebody and get a Grammy. Cool. You mm. are still, it's Trinidad music is not being recognized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a push, push, um, instigated by Casey Phillips of, you know, the soccer producer mm. to get more members as, um, to get more producers and, and artists to be members of the academy. And right. there was, I think last year, 2021, there was about a dozen of them who became voting members. Right. And it was, and it was a significant push. But as you rightly say, we are operating in a system, certainly the label system, which exists in America, the, the, the three majors globally. Mm. 
we operate here, and I, th- I guess in your situation, too, as an independent artist, right, with an independent music um, system. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not impossible, but it's a little more difficult. And then, of course, categorization. So there's, there yeah. was a talk, you know, back in 2015, 2016, about Soka, a category for Soka, the Grammys. And the people said, okay, well, you have to produce about 40 albums to be considered. We're only producing three albums, exactly. a bunch of singles. So then yeah. there was a push, okay, let's let's create a new category, Best Global Performance, that recognizes singles. But then, okay, fine, the Africans with, um, with Afrobeats are mm-hmm. dropping hundreds, and then they have hundreds of members voting. <laughs> you, you, you're outnumbered, yeah. yeah. You know, that's the whole thing. You see, uh, this is just my logic. Mm-hmm. Trinidad has 1.3 million or so people. Yeah, mm-hmm. And the goal is to have that 1.3 million people invested into our music. If the if 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 the Grammys or the Ivers or whomever mm. see a market that yes. they can profit off of, mm. of course they're going to make a, a thing. Um, reggae music has been like that. The people has jumped behind the music. Yeah, they, and they buy and they support and they pay and they perform. Plus, I've also said reggae music had a, an angel in, in Chris Blackwell. And of yeah. course, Viable Malik, um, Jimmy Cliff and others. But it, it's a hard road to two, right? And, and I'm thinking that even with jazz music, whether they play it on a steel pan or they have Caribbean rhythms on a guitar or piano, whatever it is, there's work to be done. But I, the numbers that have to, yeah. we have to have more people doing it. We have to have more people appreciating it, more people buying it. Mm-hmm. We have to have more people like you talking about it this way. And I'm very happy to continue having this conversation with you. In 2016, as you're talking about this this era of kind of development, you released your third album, Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. And what struck me was that you were on the Ropadope label. And I don't know if Ropadope was a label or if it was just a distribution channel. Guide me through Metamorphosis and how that connection ha- happened. Um, Metamorphosis, um, well, it was kind of high time because after 2012, um, I was like, you know, it's time to put on another record. I, I, I just, you know, I, I started writing for that. I wasn't sure what the name was going to be, but I was like, you know, I have the song here, I have the song. And um, the label was so far away from my thoughts at that point. Um, but I, we, we, I was touring, I was doing all these little things and I started putting the music out. And um, we had Kai Fusion. Kai Fusion came late because I was like, you know, I need to have a banger. I need to have a banger. That's you know yeah, that's the opening track, Kai Fusion. Have a banger. Um, but also writing-wise, I wanted to make sure that I don't my style doesn't drift too far away from where I came from. Mm. Um just simple little things, you know, just a love we feeling within our music. Does certain little phrases. All those were purposefully done, you know.
but but also with 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 metamorphosis it was time of change it was time of real challenges um um the tune um in the corner was literally written in the corner of my house i was struggling mm-hmm. with the idea of the scene literally mm-hmm. with the scene whereas yeah you're good you know you're this you're that you do this and mm-hmm. yeah but you you can't do this. You can't do this. You play pioneers. You're amazing, but when it's time to get paid, they don't want to get you on this gig. And I was like, it was, it was like weird. Mm. And I, I was like, okay. And I wrote that song literally of just wanting to write music. And I've been so inspired by so many other people at that time. And it so happened, a friend of mine's was I. Oh, there's an album called. Uh, <laughs> Um, by Jesse Fisher that I played on. There's a song called Nomad. Um, and I played on the song. And he was releasing on the Ropado. And I was like, what do you think about, you know, let me know about them because I knew like Jonathan Scales and all these other people mm-hmm. doing yeah. it. And we heard about Ropado. One, first it was as a clothing line. Yeah. And then I was like, but then, you know, the music. And I was like, if they're open to that, let me let me know how this goes. And he introduced me to to the to to the CEO and had a conversation. I was like, okay, I like this idea. I was in and out dabbling with um, people from Sony as well too. I, I did a project for Sony. There you go. Um, I did something for Sony Latin, which is called Bebe Tunes. We did um, I, I, we did music for for um, babies music. Mm. I wrote. We redid. Um, Enrique Iglesias and what's the other one? La Vida Loca and all this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Ricky Martin and all this stuff. And we did tunes, but they made it crib music, like rattle stuff. And then mm. we did for Sony in New York. So I was kind of dibbling, dabbling in between them. And I was like, I spoke to my friend at Sony and he's like, if Robert Up is giving you distribution, because that's literally, I didn't really care about being on a label, but you want the distribution. Distribution is critical, yes. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very important. So I said, well, you know what? It's, I'm going to ride this wave and let's see what happens. And um, it, 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 it worked out for a little bit. I, I didn't think, you know, future-wise, now we're not releasing on the Robert Up. Um, I got more success actually with brand new mischief compared to what to what, what happened at Ropado. What happened? Um, sorry, with Metamorphosis. It's on Ropado. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, Ropado is they have a lot of musicians, a lot of people. So that also could be. It's kind of like you know they have the big name like Christian Scotts and all these other people, and then you have the people at the bottom. And it's like, uh-huh. um, so yeah, that record came out. And it was cool. It was fun to be on a label. It was really mm. fun to be on a label. Um, it helped in, in many ways as well, too, because you got into certain um, certain places or even certain articles or, or what have yeah, you. I'm sure you'd have got more more reviews and, and, and yeah, media scrutiny, certainly because yeah. of that label connection. Well, we thought so. Oh, uh, tell me. No, that didn't happen. But... There were certain places I had never got uh, um, reviews from, which I got based off of that. Yes, I never heard of. Gotcha. Yeah. But my publicist at the time, his name is um, Chris DeGirolamo of Two for the Show Media. He was the same publicist I had for Brand New Mischief, which got a lot, a lot of reviews. And even NPR, Brand New Mischief got some. Um, mm-hmm. Window and Sleepless Night got a lot of play in NPR. 
And um, so, so we decided, you know, I mean, well, you know, that did pretty well. But at this point, um, I just didn't think that we were getting enough from Open Open. I was mm-hmm. like, maybe it might be best to just go back after looking at my data and everything. I was like, it might be best to this new record publish on my own. So the upcoming album, <clears throat> Calicinitas, mm-hmm. in memory of your mother, that was a mother, that was a middle name. That is going to be independently distributed or you're back with Rupadoop? No, it's independently. Indi- independently, once again. Yeah. I got you, yeah. The Rupadoop connection was, I just want to stick this in here. Um, I, I'd written an article in the magazine, Jazz in the Islands. At one point, Rupadoop had three artists, with yourself, Jonathan Scales, and Akinola Senon. Yeah. And I was able to, uh, just a, uh, a little interview, a short interview, an email interview with the, the CEO. Mm-hmm. And um, he just says, well, you know, it's, it's the music and the vibe and you like the, like the philosophy. So there's this kind of almost, there's this kind of personal connection that he had with the artist. This is what he claimed, that mm-hmm. he was able to acknowledge and say, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's, let's do this and let's see how we could um, make, make sense of this. Mm-hmm. I, I, was that your case that it was a, a good connection in terms of your relationship with the, with the label or was it different? Yeah, you, you know, he was on, they were, it's like your, your favorite, it's like your mom and pop shop. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, very down to earth. You could pick up the phone, hey, what's happening? But this, so it was a more personal level where you getting stuff done. However, um, the attention you actually need at that point in time is maybe the newer artists that wasn't happening. You still have to do all the work for yourself in terms of, mm-hmm getting your publicist and what have you. So this is my experience. Um, I'm not sure if that of Akinola's or, or, or Jonathan, because Jonathan works extremely hard, extremely hard. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't think that based on whatever was happening contractually, I just didn't think that it was worth doing that Mm -hmm. going forward. And I was like, you know what, if I have to lose, I'd rather lose on my own. I got you. I got you. That's the evolution in the business. Um, one of the big disruptors, of course, aside from the fact that social media now drives music consumption and music um, popularity, was, of course, 2020 into 2022, the COVID pandemic. Um, Jonathan, as we, as you mentioned in his name, he was like every day online with little duets online and that kind of stuff. What, what did you do during the pandemic and how did it develop into this new album that's coming out next? I started teaching at the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, crazy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I we, we had gigs. I had gigs planned all the way till September or something like that. Then um, gigs just started like canceling and cats. I was like, oh, but I, I, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't worried. I wasn't really worried. People honored the gigs and they half up and whatever the cases. And I was like, wow, you know, and we could have still made something and. It so happened that um, the University of Miami called, and this is maybe why, like, if you have a degree or whatever, it came into mm-hmm. now where I was like, okay, now I have a degree. I'm qualified to teach at university. They or they had an opening, and it's like, you know, if I want to teach, and I was like, yeah, sure, you know. Yeah. And so that was happening, and I was writing in, in between, you know, in between the time, because you're talking since 2016, I, I didn't, I haven't released anything, mm-hmm. but I was taking my time in terms of when I wanted to release an album, when, when the time was right to put out on record. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was writing for my mother 
directly. Like every tune I was right. And I have songs that just didn't make the record because we was like, you know what? This is a big band stuff and what have you. And I just, I put everything down. I focus, my focus ended up going elsewhere. And I was like, you know, let's pick this back up. And I started writing about another record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so, and, you know, politically things started happening. Whereas like, uh, especially you're talking about Donald Trump era and all that, that was like, yeah. What was happening in America? That was a, a different America. <laughs> yeah. so the, the one that you came into in 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot, man, he got elected and I sat on the couch for about two days. I was like, what the hell? You know, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah, during that time, I was, I was practicing and coming to the realization how important my degrees were at that point and still is at this time because now you couldn't travel. You couldn't do anything. You're fighting for the same audience now for people to do lessons or whatever with all these big professionals who's normally touring. Mm. And I was like, well, that ain't going to happen. I'm, you know, because one thing, everybody became now internet sensation and it's so tiring to put in our content and playing this in nice hard work by itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you had to do it twice a week or twice a day. It's too much, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I have a family. I had a, a well, she's now going on, on four. So mm-hmm. you had all this going on and man, we, we I started teaching and then just did renovation of my house at the time. The practical things, yeah, you have to, your life goes on. Otherwise, I hear you. So, you know, then we wrote the music and throughout the time there, um, John DeVerso, who's the chair of the music, the jazz department at, at University of Miami, um, who's really good friends of mine. Um, we started, you know, just playing and, and, and just exchanging ideas. I was talking about my writings and so on. And, you know, the music started coming together from then on. And um, I think just last year, I mean, actually within that time, actually when I was getting hired, we went to the studio. Actually a year after getting hired at UM, I went, we went to the studio. This is where everything started to get a little better. And we did a, a full day in the studio and put the record down. That's amazing. Um, so when is this I, I know I mispronounced Kalisanitas. That's the proper pronunciation of the, the album title, right? And that's coming out in March of 2023, you said? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you everybody, yeah, there's a, yeah. review is going, a review is going to appear in the magazine in January, right? <laughs> With the assumption that the, uh, the album was coming out in January. It was supposed to come out in January, and we started to get issues with the, the mix. And I, we sent it back, we sent it back, we sent it back. So, um, Where did you record it? In Miami? Or? I recorded in Miami. I recorded everything in Miami, and I mixed it with Dave Darlington in New York. And you uh, put Etienne Charles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that was actually why I, Etienne, because I had spoke to Etienne about Darlington. And he was like, yo, mm-hmm. he's, and I, I like to do my research. I did my research and like, this guy is the guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Well, he also did, he mixed the metamorphosis and what we got from metamorphosis. So it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There you go. Uh, and, you know, so he did that and it was great. And, but, because of how we did the sessions and that had to contribute that what contributed to that too was the engineering how they maybe some things just didn't went right in the session we couldn't get the right sound for the pan mm. 
was annoyed because how I set up, I have the same setup and everything, but maybe a mic was known or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's two mics above the pan. Well, yeah, two, I mic in stereo. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a whole other thing to, to consider because when you mic in the pan, pan, you don't really have to put a mic at the bottom of the pan. Yes, I, I've heard that. People still put a pan and a, a microphone underneath and musicians as well as some of some engineers and that's nonsense. Don't, don't take that. It has to be above. So, yeah. So you tell you me. No, you get a warmer sound and you could control the attack. One of that, and because and, I've lost a recording session that way, mm. I, I recorded um, Erica Badu's Love of My Life, her and Carmen. Mm-hmm. for this project and the guy in this session um he was like look this sounded really good but i can't get rid of the yeah they, they, they stick, of stick on the metal <laughs> and he's like you know he tried to control it as much as possible but he couldn't get it done and so we decided to remove the mic from at the bottom where we were still in a closed room we were still able to get that sound that comes up because pan is vibration mm-hmm. and, and we got that warm sound we could just still control the attack and everything like that and i use um condenser microphones and um two for left and right but also one for the room mm-hmm. so you get that nice round thing and we, we, we can um also the type of microphones i use too i use um nine one <laughs> well if you can like if you give the hand, what's the studio have the expensive ones? I take it because mm-hmm. can, um, but um, uh, I use AKG 14s. Um, mm-hmm. To um, I mean, sorry, yeah, C 14s or whatever. Um, two 14s, three 14s. I use those, and you get a really nice round sound. But uh, as so that you know, no matter how hard if I get too excited playing, mm-hmm. really. We could still control the sound. Control the sound. Mm. Yeah, and we don't have to mess with the instrument sound at all. Mm. Because now it's so well controlled, we don't have to raise any levels or whatever the case is. You talked about the warmth of the pan sound and that conversation with Narelle as well as um, Ray Holman and by extension, Robbie Greenidge, who play, all play double seconds. Has that ever been part of your arsenal or you've always been a tenor panist? No, I play every pan in the pan, yeah, you know. Um, but double seconds, I, I I started playing double seconds to open up my range, how I hear. Yes. Uh, but I always wanted to be, um, I, was, I was a telepan player for so long and I wanted to master that. Um, mm. So, but also it's easier to travel. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the most important thing, yeah. Economically, look, man, it's so easy to travel. Yep, yep. We've brought... <laughs> We brought Annie's, we brought Victor Provost, we brought Andy Narell to Trinidad. And of course, we brought you, Leon Foster Thomas, the jazz artist on the greens. And, and Jonathan Scales, I, I forgot him also. And you're mm-hmm. correct. I mean, we have to pay baggage. No two ways about it. But Andy and Scales say it's two, it's two, two parts working with, right? It's, it's that it's our thing. Um, yeah. uh, um, Victor Provost has an oversized tenor. Mm-hmm. I think similarly, um, and he's has an oversize. Is your pan an oversize or is it a standard size tenor? No, I standard size. I don't want an oversize thing. Then mm-hmm. things are getting smaller. And, ah. uh, you know, you know, I, 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 yeah, I have a problem with certain things where you've given me a G pan that is extremely huge. I can't do nothing with that. Yeah, that G pan, to me, a defect in the song in the middle at the bottom of the pan. It sounds like wood. <laughs> <laughs> 
know what I mean? But, mm. you know, I don't want to knock it at all, but my problem with that, and I remember when Pro was given one professor mm-hmm. and he brought it, he's like, he couldn't put it in his car. He had to get a van to bring it home. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's maybe a good idea, but say what? Um, as as we are about wrapping up this conversation in a few minutes, tell us about Kalisinitas and and what do we expect from Leon Foster Thomas coming forward, going forward into 2023? All right. So Kalisinitas is um, um, a dedication to my mother, and we um, we have some some hitters like um, <laughs> hitters John Diversa, Troy Roberts, uh, both Grammy Award winners, and uh, Tal Cohen, who's been my pianist for. Yeah, my- who did mention it at? Ah, me sing. He does not spell as something else. Uh, him, Michael Pilot on drums, who was, also came to Trinidad. Um, one of my former students on bass, um, Michael Ramos. And um, um, Cuban guest, Miguel Herrera on flute. Havel Nakundi, who also you might have heard with, with, with Etienne at some point, Haitian drummer. Yeah. Um, ridiculous. And uh, who else? I think that's it. When we have this, you know, everybody being featured on the, the album, and um, it, this really took us for a journey. Really, this is for me a book of stories, a book of stories, and where I talk about growing up in Trinidad through music and my mother's influence, and even even tracks like "I Am an Immigrant," which was written based on the uh, the South, the people coming from South America, the caravan as they call them, caravan on the southern border. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just like it triggered off the idea of like, man, if people don't know what it means to leave your home and to mm. look for another place to make a living. And the connection that has to my mother was when I was leaving Trinidad, she said, when you leave here, don't come back. Huh? And I was like, oh, she, she told you to migrate and that's it. She said, there's nothing here for you. We grew up poor. Mm. Oh, this is a big sacrifice. So that was like the main thing. So writing about these struggles or writing about these stories, um, holding on to certain things about what puts that smile on your face at certain points in time in the record, that like bliss and uh, ascension and, and what have you. Um, Dance of David is a re- reimagination of me growing up in the spiritual Baptist faith or just the story of the spiritual Baptist. And I was like, well, you know, you know, so, so this is, we're really excited about this. Mm-hmm have an album release concert in February 11th. So it's kind of like a pre-album release concert. Mm-hmm. Um, February 11th at the Miami Band Show. Are you um, coming back to Trinidad to preview it at all? Are you coming back to Trinidad before the album launch? Um, well, I'm looking to come to Trinidad after that show. <laughs> so after that show. Okay. Yeah. Kind of um, <laughs> Yeah, but, but at, maybe at a later time, I would love to. We would love to. Right now, we're in the process of putting things together and booking or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the finishing touches, we should have this ready at least for pre-consumption for like, you know, the journalists and stuff, January, February, give everybody. And you'll be touring this in Europe now that you're based on that side of the yeah. pond. Yeah. We, we want to, we hope to tour everywhere. Mm-hmm. So summertime, hopefully we would have a really great schedule coming up and mm-hmm. fall and hope, I'll be able to balance that as well with you know with my school and all with that. the studies and then Leon Foster Thomas. Foster is his name, it's not a nickname, it's his name, Leon Foster Thomas, with the golden tenor pan. 
Not an yeah. oversized, but a Butch Kelman classic fan. Yeah. Leon, this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation, recognizing that it's not four albums, ladies and gentlemen, but five albums. First <laughs> album being Crossover Jazz, which you'll hear a track from, which you probably heard at the beginning of this podcast. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for the work that you've done. I want to thank you for creating music that's original. Because although I know you have covers on all your albums, well, three out of four albums, you have cover songs of Calypso's and that kind of stuff. The Putting out original music is something I've always been hoping and praying that our artists do. And you have done it. You have done it at a high level. You have done it at an, as even if you're not a jazz lover, you recognize, okay, there's a beat, there's a rhythm, there's a Kai fusion that I'm hearing, but there's also a sense of adventure, a sense of risk, which you're doing with the steel pan, which another musicians, yes, admittedly, we now have the pan jazz community has musicians doing this, but the sound of the steel pan to become part of the, the wider repertoire of instruments that play jazz music is something that I could hope for. I think Schofield Pilgrim hoped for that way back in the success and that kind of stuff. So thank, thank you, you very much for this and all the best in the future. And I know we'll be talking again and hey, we might be working again. You never know. You might have a launch concert somewhere in Trinidad. Let's do it. Because I think, because this this music, I, I don't know if you've done, have, you haven't done tours, you haven't done St. Lucia Jazz or any kind of thing like that, right? No. There are spaces for you and there are spaces for this music to be heard. And I think even within Panama and, and some of the, well, you're an American citizen or green card holder. I don't know which one it is now. But you, so there's now, you can, there, there are festivals that have to hear this instrument. We have to have a diverse range of voices. So thank you for that. Leon, thanks everything. And all the best. I'm Nigel Campbell. He's Leon Foster Thomas. Bye. Island Jazz Chat has been a production of Jazz in the Islands magazine powered by iradio.tt